Welcome to the Fear Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I am joined by my all-star cast. John Eason is the E. Adam Belmar is the B. And, of course, I'm your host, John Fury. We started with the Neil Young version of Like a Hurricane, because this is the hurricane edition of uh, the Fear Theory Podcast. And, uh, Adam Belmar, we are very concerned about the folks down in North Carolina as this storm hits. We are. Uh, as people watch the Fury Theory across the weekend, know that we're thinking of you. We realize that uh, the enormous amount of rain and storm surge is wreaking havoc up and down the Carolinas and here into Virginia, and our thoughts and our prayers are with you. Uh, John Easton, have you ever been in a hurricane? I've, I've felt like I've been in a hurricane before uh, at a, uh, on the Oregon coast. One night it was raining sideways, probably over 100 mile an hour winds, and uh, I remember my wife, Michelle, said, you know, where I come from, they called this a hurricane because she's from Louisiana. And it probably was at that time, but it was very short-lived. We, I've been in a hurricane kind of thing. We had a big hurricane here in Washington, D.C. in like 2003, I think, 2002. Mm-hmm. It was a big one. Uh, we ended up uh, playing a lot of drinking games, uh, which was probably not appropriate, but it was kind of fun. We are pretty far away from the coast we here were, in Washington, yeah. D.C. And was that Isabel? Is that- it might have been Isabel. It might have been Isabel. Um, but let's get to the theories. This is We're not going to call them theories. We're going to call them hurricanes. Hurricane 1, Florence, I hardly knew you. Uh, and this is going to focus mostly on Washington, D.C. A lot of the uh, stores around the area are sold out completely of water and toilet paper. There's a hurricane party. We're going to go to a picture that I took at a local establishment of a hurricane party. Um, the Washington, D.C. government has already declared a state of emergency, uh, but guess what? The hurricane's not going to have anything to do. We barely had any rain here. We're not going to have that much rain over the weekend. I think we're going to have softball and Little League baseball um, this this weekend. Uh, Adam Belmar talking about Washington and hurricanes. Uh, this is kind of a long way to get into this subject. Uh, how does Washington play hurricanes? And we're going to talk a little bit about what your experience was with Katrina um, in the aftermath of the Bush White House. Um, uh, and let's talk also a little bit about how Donald Trump has handled hurricanes in his short tenure as president. Uh, this can be big weather events can be very tricky. And this weather event is both, according to Donald Trump, tremendously big and tremendously wet. Um, talk a little bit about Katrina and how the Bush folks dealt with that. Well, no doubt uh, President Trump has the best words, and uh, in this case, uh, he's right uh, about how tremendously big and wet uh, Florence is. And as Jack Nicholson said in uh, A Few Good Men, is there any other kind? (laughs) Thank you. That's perfect. Well, look, you're talking about politics as well as federal policy towards disasters, and uh, I want to approach it in that vein. Um, Really, the federal response is always... Uh, from a process perspective about backing up the local and state officials, helping people to put in place, uh, you know, recovery efforts, uh, not frontline response in managing the municipal elements of a storm. And so when we look back to Hurricane Katrina, which politically was an enormous hurricane of the political kind, um, President Bush was perceived to be completely out of touch, both with what the realities of the the locks and the barriers in New Orleans and the 10th Ward 
were suffering before the hurricane, what people had predicted afterwards, and then to what extent the federal response was meshing with what was going on at the state level. And uh, I think you can argue quite effectively that the federal response was a lot better than it got credit for being, but the perception was you're doing a great job, Brownie, and what was going on in the Astrodome, or no, 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 not the Astrodome, the uh, Superdome. The Superdome. Um, and so it was a political hurricane of the first order and was one that plagued the Republican uh, presidency and the majority going all the way into 2006. Yeah, and my theory on this, Adam, was that this was the beginning of the end of the Republican dominance of uh, Washington. Um, if you recall, the... the uh, the, the anger towards the Republicans, towards Katrina, sparked additional anger at the Iraq War, and then which led into the financial crisis. Um, and I thought it led to a loss of confidence in Republican governance. Uh, John Easton, looking back at that, how has uh, and, and then looking forward, can Florence have the same type of impact, um, or is this going to be kind of just you know another another weather event? And I think think of that in the terms of how uh, what happened last year in Houston and then uh, with Harvey and then the Puerto Rico uh, is still recovering from their, their big hurricane, but it, doesn't, it hasn't seemed to really have a, much of a dent in uh, President Trump's popularity ratings, which are kind of where they are, have yeah. been. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. It, I think to your point about Katrina, it, it was one of those things that became a symbol of, mm. of leadership or and, – and the Party-wide, remember, too, in 2006, the party was suffering from a lot of uh, scandals, whether it was, you know, the Jack Abramoff era, Tom DeLay, uh, Duke Cunningham, Mark Foley. I mean, it just – and it became not a party of reform. It just became a party of feathering your own nest and, in a lot of cases, hypocrisy. And when Katrina came along and you had the Air Force One flyover, it just it, it just sort of – I don't know. It, it, it did, a lot, did a lot of damage because it sort of um, – galvanized everything. But I think with Florence, um, you're talking about politicians, and, and particularly in the aftermath of, the, of, of President Bush, politicians saw, public officials saw what happened to him. And so now it's better to be over-prepared than under-prepared. And I think what, what politicians fear as much as anything is uh, being caught unprepared for something, could be a disaster or something else, flat-footed, and in even some cases, death. That, that something that they didn't do may have indirectly or directly caused deaths of their constituents. It's just terrifying to a public official. So I think when you see declarations of emergency, you know, so that resources can be released quickly, even in the District of Columbia, which does seem ridiculous. But I think what, it, what it's saying is, we're going to get out in front of this. We're not going to get caught flat-footed. Nobody can blame us for being underprepared on this thing. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you talk about that, and I'm, I'm a Chicagoan. And um, there was a case when Chicago got hit by a huge snowstorm, and the mayor at the time, Mayor Belandic, didn't aggressively clear the streets, and it led to his ouster as mayor. And I think that was the, the, one of the first times a weather event caused the downfall of a, a politician. Katrina is another example of that. But you know, Adam Belmar, I think about how politicians overreact to these things because of their own political survival. I also think about how the media overreacts because they want to, they love weather events because it's good for ratings. Well, listen, uh, two, two quick stories. Um, in the late 1990s, I was a 
field producer for a national television network. I've said this to friends before, but I will say it publicly now. It is one of the greatest regrets I have as a professional. We were chasing Hurricane Floyd at the time. It was a Cat 5 for a short period before it made landfall. It was wobbling between uh, Jacksonville Beach in Florida and Wrightsville Beach north of there. I wanted to achieve, John Fury, the best pictures, the most dramatic 11 o'clock news headlines, and in doing so, I put the people in my team and our equipment in harm's way unnecessarily. I was young, uh, and I was uh, imprudent in my decision-making, and I'm ever grateful that we did not, and we did get into a couple of very close scrapes, have anyone get hurt. Fast forward to 2005, on the eve of President Bush's interview with Diane Sawyer in the Roosevelt Room, which I produced as a senior Washington producer for ABC News. Uh, got into a conversation, if not an argument, with Diane Sawyer the night before the interview. She was really angry and bottling, or sort of bottled up a lot of the angst that people had about the federal response. And I told her, I said, listen, you cannot go in there and blame the President of the United States for what's going on in the weather and what's going on in the ground in New Orleans. We agreed to disagree. I got thrown out of the hotel room. Um, (laughs) But the next morning, she sat down and she was uh, calm as ever the professional. Uh, She's an amazing uh, human being. But she asked the president about it in in a unique way. And he responded, no one could have predicted dot, dot, dot. Well, you know what? A lot of people do predict. And those are the things that come back to bite you. Lastly, on President Trump... He picked a political fight with the mayor or the governor of, uh, or the mayor of San Juan um, in the Oval Office, right in the middle, gentlemen, of a briefing by Brock Long, the FEMA director, in the Oval. That was a great visual play of how serious the president was taking it, only to undermine it with a political fight. So between the media and the perception, it's a tricky line to to walk. And uh, all excellent points, Adam, and very interesting. Um, John Easton... And he's not letting it go. He's not letting this oh, fight go with Puerto Rico. He's also he's still claiming. And then, you know, this is this goes back to what happened in New Orleans. I mean, the the the, the response of the loca- locality in New Orleans during Katrina and the governor uh, Blanco, whatever, I can't remember last name, um, was a disaster. And they didn't do their due diligence, and, but Bush got the blame. Sure. Uh, I think Trump, in many ways, has learned this, and he's placing as much blame on the people of Puerto Rico and not taking any blame for himself, but I'm sure there's some shared blame. Right. I mean, he doesn't really know how to take blame for anything. <laughs> no. And, and, and he, he, you can do this in a, in a pretty savvy way by saying, hey, we've learned X, Y, and Z. Uh, next time, you know, I think we can do this better. We did pretty well, but we can do better. Give, give yourself a B plus or, you know, whatever it takes. But I think the fact that President Trump showed up in, in Houston, I know that that's kind of a, a requirement now. But he also flew to Puerto Rico. Right. Now, if you take a quick look at, I think it was yesterday. I want to say they, they had the the Washington Post had the polling on uh, favorability of or or how you know the Puerto Ricans have uh, considered the response of President Trump and then the governor of Puerto Rico, the mayor. You know, so public officials all the way down the line, they're all upside down. They're all viewed unfavorably with President Trump having the worst. So it's it's tough. Now, I think everybody you know learned during the Puerto Rico. Hurricane Maria that, you know, their infrastructure is so fragile down right. there. And they had a Category 5. Was it 5 when it hit? Or 4? Just just wipe them out. And they they didn't have much strength there to begin with. Right. 
So it's and, – and New Orleans is the same. I mean, you know, the hurricane comes in, levees breached, and bang, you know, flooding just, you know, a mile wide. So, you know, you, you, you try to just get out there ahead of it. You try to, you know, give comfort. I mean, all the things that a, that a leader has to do. And if you don't do those things, you know, you're going to get swamped just like everybody else. I think the, the problem with Puerto Rico with the response has been that Washington has been cheap with it. And this would have been a great opportunity to thoroughly invest lots of money and make Puerto Rico great again. Um, and the, the federal government hasn't done that. And they need to do that because, as you pointed out, the infrastructure in Puerto Rico, especially uh, the electricity infrastructure, was a disaster before it hit. Well, now that's all wiped out. So you have an opportunity to go in and rebuild, and they haven't done it. And I think it's because they're being penny-wise and pound-foolish. And if they do that, then we really do get a chance to make Puerto Rico, you know, modern. And yeah. it hasn't been. Uh, anyway, I think Trump is still trying to take credit for this, and I don't, I don't think that politically works for him. But the president's always on offense, Adam, and, you know, sometimes that works. The president is always on offense. That's a truism. It doesn't matter what the situation or where you go in this country, whether you're with him or you're against him, you know he's leaning forward and constantly pushing his own narrative. Getting into a fight about how many people actually died as a direct result of the hurricane is something that he's been drawn into, but almost willingly. It's a dangerous and somewhat heartless thing to be doing uh, at any time, especially as we get right into a new hurricane, and, and that's unfortunate. You know, the only other thing I'd say as a uh, political analogy for folks, you know, if you have a not-so-nice car, I might even go as far as to say you drive a shitbox, <laughs> and you get into an accident that wasn't your fault, and all of a sudden, you know, the insurance company's standing there saying, well, how do I get you back to where you were? And you say, back to where I was. I need a new car, a brand new car, a brand new car. And that's kind of like Puerto Rico. It was half a shitbox before the uh, accident happened, and their infrastructure was bad, and everybody knew it. They had huge debt. But you know what? I do agree with you politically and just in terms of humanitarian uh, support for fellow Americans, we probably could have done and should have done more. And you know, the, the other political truism here is that um, – you know, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans that have moved from Puerto Rico to other places, sure and enough. by and large, they're Democratic voters. So it, it actually behooved the Republicans to really aggressively rebuild Puerto Rico and attract people back there. Uh, but that hasn't happened. Uh, John Easton, we're going to get off this topic, uh, but Rick Scott, ironically, because he did such a good job in the Puerto Rico response, is actually doing a lot better amongst Hispanic voters and has a really good shot of winning that Senate seat. Right, and I don't know if that's a direct result of his hurricane response. It certainly didn't hurt, and, and I think it may have reminded some of these voters that he is sensitive to not just um, a certain constituency but all, and particularly the Hispanic community. But I just I just think that with, with Rick Scott, it goes beyond that. I mean, he's just been present with that community for a, quite a long time, yeah. and, and he understands them, and, and he understands the importance of – of that block, voting block, uh, of his state, and he's been very savvy with it. I would say one last thing on Rick Scott. The thing that's interesting about him is he's not a typical politician in the sense that he actually does stuff. Yeah. And he doesn't just talk about stuff. He actually does stuff, and I think that gives him a lot of credibility with that community. Hurricane 2, Republican majority, prepare to die. I think about... (laughs) 
one of my favorite movies. Uh, we, we are often quoting The Princess Bride around Princess here. Princess Bride. Um, you know, the mainstream media, fed in part by panicked Republican strategists, has already declared that the Republicans in the House are dead and that the Senate majority is in serious danger. Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, didn't dispel that notion uh, in a comments at the Washington Post earlier this week where he said, you know, we've got some real tough times coming. Um, is this a temp- tempest in teapot? Or are the bitter enders like me who believe that the Republican majority is still a chance in both the House and the Senate, uh, like those bitter enders in the North Carolina coast who refuse to leave their house? Uh, John Easton, um, what are your thoughts? Are, are you with all the – you have been with all the political prognosticators out there. You believe that the Republicans are in serious trouble in both places. Not in both places. I've always said the Senate looks um, solid for – not solid, but uh, very, very likely uh, to stay in Republican hands. And I think we've gone through the races, and, I, and I'd say we're – even a pickup or two is very possible. It's the House that, um, that I think uh, has been uh, problematic and continues to be – and, you know, it's, there's the bitter enders who want the Republicans to maintain control of the, of the House of Representatives and the Senate. And then there are those who look into the winds, uh, these tough winds, and say, is it possible? And, you know, I found that, that Leader McConnell's – I watched his interview uh, that he gave when he really walked through about – he just mentioned about six states where there are toss-ups. And some of them were Republican, like Arizona and, and Nevada. And then there are others, of course, that have been on the, on the list for a while there that are democratically held, North Dakota, Indiana, Missouri. Then we have Florida as well that we just talked about. So I think that he was doing a couple of things. I think he was a little bit of managing of expectations, just a little bit. I mean, this guy doesn't say anything without having a clear objective in mind. And then I would say, too, to inject a little bit of urgency and fire into his members – but also in his caucus, but also uh, donors, to say, uh, hey, this this is not a done deal that we keep this majority in the Senate. Um, we need all hands on deck. I, I think that that was a bit of a, a little bit of a cry for urgency. The, the reason I, I think you're right, um, you know, I think a lot of these races in both the Senate and the House, depending on the prevailing winds, could go either way. A lot of these races are within three to four points, and the House side especially – uh, a lot of Republicans are really worried that they have a five to seven point lead right now, but if they don't get the turnout that they require, uh, they're gonna they're gonna get trounced. Um, I've always believed that that Republicans are just as energized to vote. Um, historically, you know, white middle class uh, older voters, which trend tend re- Republican, tend to vote much more in midterms than millennials who don't vote at all. So, Adam Belmar, um, putting your political prognosticator hat on, um, what's your analysis of what's, what's going on? Well, the, the, they titled the book Fear for a Reason. And uh, as John Easton has just said, the Senate Majority Leader and others are now turning to a very powerful motivator in fear. And it does come 
uh, all the way back to turnout. Um, you know, the blue wave can only be, if it's there at all, uh, pushed back by a strong representation in every single polling place. Those votes, every last one of them, count in these tight, tight races. And we're bucking history here. We're bucking precedent with the loss of uh, a majority in the House of Representatives in the uh, midterm election of a new president. And so things are really not looking good statistically, historically. And yet there are a lot of reasons to find hope, but not without fear. Well, and, and on, the, on the hope front, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, a couple interesting pieces of data coming from an NBC Wall Street Journal poll uh, yesterday or a couple days ago. And that is and, – and one of them that I wanted to mention was the, um, the brand. Democrats have long held this, this advantage on their brand, party brand. I mean for at least 10 years, if not 20. And that is um, – you know, they're viewed much more favorably than, than, than Republicans as a party time and time and time again. But they are now tied Wow! at, uh, I believe I, I saw, yeah, 32 favorable, 43 unfavorable, both parties. That's huge. And, I, I, and, I just... and yet the generic ballot, which is would you rather have a Republican Congress or Democratic Congress, um, they, they now hold an eight-point lead. I know that that can be overstated just because, you know, are they likely voters? They're not, they aren't, there's not a name attached to it. So it's actually, you got to put, you know, take, take a grain of salt with that. But I, I did find that really interesting, and I think it's, it's we're in the Trump era of, of this. You know, either you hate the guy, love the guy, you, you know, you, you're sick and tired of everything. And I think there's a lot, people are taking the, their politics much more personally. And the, the hurricane analogy goes... You know, we have had in the past where you've had these Category 5 hurricanes that are blowing in that um, automatically, and you you hear about 30-foot swells and you hear all this stuff, and when the hurricane actually hits, it's, you know, a tropical rainstorm and there's no swells. Um, We'll see if that happens with Florence, but I think that is exactly what's going to happen in the election. Everyone is anticipating this blue wave, uh, huge hurricane of Democratic activity be based on earlier activity you know they talk a lot about these special elections they talk about the big fundraising advantage for the democrats they talk about all these other things the president's persistently low poll ratings um but when he actually gets the election the big prevailing win adam belmar is the economy yeah no it's a very strong prevailing there are great things to point to and things that are resonating with with voters out there, certainly folks who are uh, supporters of President Trump who count themselves deeply in that category, that we can look at and see that stand in stark contrast to the policies that Democratic legislators and candidates are harping on right now. Um, I I really feel like the call early on that this was going to be a referendum on the president holds true to some extent. I realize that traditionally I, I hate Congress, but I love my congressmen. People out there do think about what's going on in the White House and whether they are uh, on sort of uh, that uphill side of I'm against the president, we've got to resist, or the folks who are top of the mountain saying I really believe in this leadership and we've got to reinforce it in the Congress. It's a split, but I think that uh, what happens in October, another hurricane perchance, uh, could portend what we see at the polls and, and, and ultimately the turnout. Hurricane 3, October surprise, to Adam Belmar's point. What is going to be the October surprise? And um, I mean, when I was first in Washington in 1992, Lawrence Walsh led a report that helped indict Casper Weinberger that really hurt George H.W. Bush's 
effort to reclaim the momentum, and he lost the election. In 2006, the October surprise was the Mark Foley scandal, which really kind of put a tinderbox, put a, a match to the tinderbox of Republican corruption that had really kind of disgusted a lot of voters. That was the final straw, and Republicans got killed in the 2006 election. Um, the most famous example of an October surprise was a surprise that didn't happen, this idea that the Reagan administration negotiated with the, the regime of Iran not to release the hostages before the election. And after Ronald Reagan got elected, the hostages in the Iran hostage crisis got um, released. The first time this has really came up as a, as a possibility were, were in the 1968 elections where there was uh, some thought that the Nixon administration scotched any kind of peace deal in North Korea because they were really worried uh, as the, the time was ticking in the election that a peace deal would help uh, Hubert Humphrey. Um, the irony of that story was um, the Nixon Kissinger regime actually was doing that, but how the Johnson campaign found out about it is they were illegally taping the Nixon campaign. So this is this is one of these things where the more you look at history, the more you think no one's on the level. Um, John Easton, what is going to be the October surprise in this election? <laughs> That's why they call it a surprise. <laughs> you don't know. It is so uh, utterly impossible to even make a prediction. But I but I would like to um, throw a, a, a theory that unlike other elections and other you know past political eras. I mean, we are in an era where Donald Trump is so ubiquitous out there. He's so, you know, such a towering figure in 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 the um in in politics uh of all the races out there really that and and of our political thinking and our political digest. It, it's just something that we're still trying to get our arms around. So it's got to be it used to be, you know, and John had a couple of good examples here, but it used to be that you know, you could have like a, 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 you know, congressman scandal that might reverberate all the way through the party and to the ballot box. But now we've got somebody, it's, it's sort of live by Donald Trump's volatility and die by Donald Trump's volatility. I feel like if there are a, let's say a Mueller investigation, um, you know, something concludes there and there's some big report. I mean, as we were talking about earlier, this guy is so on offense, and he's been so on offense every single day of this Mueller investigation that I'm not sure there's going to be some you know, other shoot to drop that they haven't already uh, prefaced with their own you know, sort of circle of the wagon strategy on, on, on the investigation. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where I, I think Trump is going to drown out anything that, that could be a surprise. So no surprise, surprise. No surprise. Uh, Adam Belmar, I think John gets to a really excellent point. In each race, there might be a surprise that is dropped. I think that you see that in campaigns all the time. You know, an ad comes out uh, talking about some former congressman's rap lyrics. That's happening in a race in, in, in New York. Um, or, you know, you have some sort of allegation of sexual impropriety that magically gets in the newspaper two weeks before the election. Um, you worked for a president who almost lost his election because revelations came that he uh, was a, got a convicted of drunk driving. George W. Bush 
that 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 almost sank his election, and that magically came out a couple weeks before the election. To John's point, Adam, will will October surprise impact from a national level, or will it all happen at the local level? I wish I really had the answer to that question. Uh, I do know that. Um, when everything's a surprise, nothing's a surprise. And uh, I, I really don't know that anything from the Stormy Daniels book to a Mueller conclusion as unlikely as that is in October to uh, anything else we might think of is, is going to constitute a surprise that's going to take from the national level straight down to the ballot box, that's going to transcend the partisan divide that already exists. Every race will have its own potential for an October surprise, and those are important because it's only going to take a few as we approach 20, 22, 24 pickups for the Democrats to attain that majority in the House. Overall, uh, I just pray that it's not a, uh, an international serious military crisis. Those are the kind of surprises that choose you. You can't choose them, and the timing is never known, and it's, uh, it's something I always worry about. Uh, so let's go through the, the universe of pos- possible surprises. There's, as you pointed out, the Stormy Daniels book, and we're kind of in a hurricane type of situation here. So Stormy is a perfect, could be a perfect October surprise. Tremendously wet. We get per- per- tremendously huge, tremendously wet. Um, we we could have, uh, have Robert Mueller um, releases report. That would be a huge October surprise. We could have Donald Trump fire Robert Mueller. That could be, you know, a surprise of his own making. We could have a NAFTA trade deal, um, which would show that the president is not the crazy person that people thinks he think he is, and that he's someone who actually can get to make huge deals. Um, we could have uh, peace break out in North Korea again, another summit in North Korea. Um, to your, your point, we had uh, American bombers or American fighter jets. Um, Run some Russian bombers off, um, so we can get some some sort of shooting war with the Russians. I don't think that's going to happen. What happens in Syria could be a, a big deal. Maybe a chemical attack in Syria that we respond to. Um, so, John Easton, there seems to be a whole universe out there. Uh, you're, you've already kind of made your point uh, on a scale of one to ten. One being uh, no surprises to your point. Uh, ten being a big surprise could could really kind of shift the election in one way or the other. Uh, what are your chances of anything happening? I just think very little because I think that, let's say for Mueller investigation, um, or Stormy Daniels, better, better I think, example. I mean, this has been kind of litigated uh, already. Uh, so she writes a book, and is there anything in there that's going to be a surprise in this book that none of us have known about? I mean, I think Michael Avenatti would have probably outed that long ago. Or you know, Stormy Downs. So, I, of all the things you mentioned right there, uh, we've the public has been digesting all of those up to today. So, uh, if there is a surprise, it, it it will be from the man himself, the president, and it will be uh, something that he thinks is just a great so idea. Oh, my number? Oh, two. And two. The answer is seven. Uh, the fact is, is that the election is so volatile. The races are so close that any big news that comes out can shift this election one way or the other. This election right now is not about anything. It could be about something, and it could happen in October. Uh, John Easton, uh, I'm not going to start with you on the buy and sell because I know (laughs) that Adam Belmar already has a buy and sell. So, Adam Belmar, what are you buying or selling today? 
So earlier this week, you all may have heard this story. If you haven't, I think it's a good news story, even though it's predicated on something not so good. The Houston Chronicle has a reporter named Michael Ward join the paper from the Austin American Statement in 2014. His reporting brought into question about whether he fabricated quotes. This is not new. This is not something we've never seen before at uh, Premier Papers. However, the editor of the Houston Chronicle tackled it head-on with a letter to uh, all of their readers saying, this has come to our attention. We are investigating. We owe it to the reporter. We owe it to all of the staff, and we certainly owe it to our readers to get to the truth here one way or another. That reporter resigned. Resignation accepted. This kind of transparency and the ability to own up to potential mistakes and throw open the doors to investigation to put light on those who try to shed light and bring voices of the community forward through newspapers, it's important. I put them on the buy list because that's the way it ought to be done. And uh, I look forward to seeing what the conclusion of that investigation is. John Eason, what are you buying or selling today? I'm going to sell... I don't usually sell. I'm going to sell. Uh, I just felt like it. I'm going to sell injuries in professional sports. <laughs> Let me just go through. And, 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 and I, have a, a, I have a highlight of an example, and that is the Washington Redskins last Sunday afternoon steamrolled the Arizona Cardinals. And for, I think, one primary reason, they were healthy. And if you look at that, I watched the offensive line almost the whole game do their thing and they were all our starters these guys went down one by one last season several of them before the season even started but you're talking about Trent Williams Brandon Scherf Laval Rouillet Morgan Moses all of them just earth movers for our running backs and and it and it makes all the difference in the world you look at the Washington Nationals you look at um, Strasburg this this season you look at Daniel Murphy didn't start for you know, months you had um, uh, Rendon. I mean, you can go through it, and and there are other reasons why the Washington Nationals fell short of expectations, but that was a big one. And so to watch a team that has such potential be healthy from the get go, and, and and guess what, they blew them out. So I'm going to um, sell injuries, and then the one thing I'm going to buy real quick is the Washington Mystics WNBA. They lost in the finals, but. Uh, way to go, Washington Mystics. Uh, you ladies, are uh, you crushed it. Okay, well, there you go. I am going to buy AI slash robotics. We're going to have a CEO on the show next week who's going to talk about his company. Um, York Exponential. York Exponential. John McElligot. And he's yeah. going to talk to us about the future, which is going to be made more comfortable, more secure by robots. And we're going to talk to him about that. The um, artificial intelligence uh, is seen as the Terminator. You know, it's got a great threat to jobs, a great threat to national security. I think, actually, robotics is going to help create the new jobs, which are going to be jobs based on creativity and using your brain and not stupid stuff that you can use robots for. Um, so... The challenge for the, for the American society and all society is to be able to deal with robotics and make the best use of them. And the importance for America to, to lead on this technology is it's, it's the future. And so we're going to have a great speaker on next week. We're going to ask some great questions. We're going to talk about the ups and downs. But I think robotics and robots 
And AI uh, is something that I'm going to buy, and I urge you all to use your robot to buy as well. Uh, with that, I just want to say uh, thank you for joining us on the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by uh, EFB. EFB means excellent for business. And I want to say, we're not going to say, yeah, baby, anymore. Didn't we just say it? No, you not. just did. Well, <laughs> you just said, oh, yeah, baby. I it's like a senator saying, "Well, we've had, I wouldn't call my esteemed colleague. We've had some um, complaints about the yeah, baby. I like it, but um, we're not going to say it anymore, so we're not going to say it. Thank you. Yeah, baby. <laughs>